Please turn in your Bibles to the book of Exodus, way at the beginning after Genesis, Exodus chapter 15. I'll be reading in just a moment verses 22 through 27, Exodus chapter 15. And let's pray as we come to God's word. Oh, Heavenly Father, it's no less your word because we're here on Sunday night as opposed to Sunday morning. And you have no less to say to us. And so we ask that you would speak and we would listen. We pray this for our sake in the name of Jesus. Amen. I am really excited to be here tonight. I've been excited to be here in the morning as well. I love the evening service. Some of you may have uh, read, I wrote a little bit about it online, just my I- experience. I grew up morning and evening. Just my parents brought me to Sunday school, to Sunday morning, to Sunday evening, to Wednesday night. And if the church was open another night, we would have been there too. That's just what my parents did. And so it's always been ingrained in me to come Sunday morning and Sunday evening. Not that it, it isn't a, a chore sometimes and not that it isn't difficult to, to get kids to want to get up and get out of the house again. All of that is true. But I love the evening service. And my experience has been over the years and in 15 years of pastoral ministry, I've always had an evening service. My experience has been that those have been some of the, the best, sweetest times to be in the Word together with the saints for a second time. So I hope that you will try to make it your habit, even if it hasn't been, and that if you don't yet love the evening service, that you will grow into that. So that's one of the reasons I'm excited to be here. I also am excited because this is an opportunity to have some continuity with the faithful pulpit ministry that Mike had here for so many years and know that he was preaching through Exodus and um, I began to listen to some of those online as he was going through and when I saw that he stopped at Exodus 15, I thought there would be an opportunity to pick up right where Mike left off several months ago. And I also love to be here because I love to preach from the Old Testament. Of course, it's all good and the new as well as the old, but sometimes you you can find little nuggets in the Old Testament and you can pull out things that maybe we haven't seen before and we begin to open our minds to understand how what Jesus said on the road to Emmaus is really true. All of the scriptures point to him and I think you've already seen that and will continue to see that throughout the book of Exodus here in the evening. Exodus is about the God who makes himself known. And you'll probably hear me say that many times. That's actually a title of a, of a good book that came out a couple of years ago about the theology of Exodus called The God Who Makes Himself Known. If I had to give in one phrase the summary of this book, that would be it. We see from start to finish that the burden in Exodus is that this God would be known to Moses, to the Israelites, to the Egyptians, to the nations, to the world. Think of what you've already seen in Exodus chapter 3, for example, when Moses is called out of the burning bush, when he's on the far side of Midian just wandering around wondering what God's going to do with his life. And God speaks to him out of this bush and he gives them this mission to go to Egypt, go back to his people, his adopted people, and he says, who shall I say has sent me? What's your name? Who are you? 
Moses doesn't yet know who this God is. And there famously in chapter 3, he says, you shall tell him my name is the Lord or Yahweh. I am that I am. And then, as you know the story of the exodus itself and freedom from bondage in Egypt, you see over and over how God is, in fact, making himself known. He's answering that question that Moses asked, who are you? Who is this God? The crossing of the Red Sea answered that question. The plagues answered that question. Who is the Lord was the question. And then you may remember that later he asked, who, O Lord, is like you? Because God has made himself known. And that theme will continue throughout the book. But what we are going to see tonight as we start a new kind of section here is another key theme emerge. Not just the God who makes himself known, but what does it mean to follow this God who has revealed himself to us? Follow along as I read, beginning at verse 22. Then Moses made Israel set out from the Red Sea, and they went into the wilderness of Shur. They went three days in the wilderness and found no water. When they came to Marah, they could not drink the water of Marah because it was bitter. Therefore, it was named Mara. And the people grumbled against Moses, saying, What shall we drink? And he cried to the Lord, and the Lord showed him a log. And he threw it into the water, and the water became sweet. There the Lord made for them a statute and a rule, and there he tested them, saying, If you will diligently listen to the voice of the Lord your God and do that which is right in his eyes and give ear to his commandments and keep all his statutes, I will put none of the diseases on you that I put on the Egyptians, for I am the Lord your healer. Then they came to Elim, where there were twelve springs of water and seventy palm trees, and they encamped there by the water." There is a natural break in the story after verse 21, and so it makes perfect sense that a sermon series might end there. No problem with that. But we do want to notice something very, very important right after verse 21. Okay, I want you to stare at your Bibles, look there at the end of verse 21. I want you to look really hard, and I want you to see if you can notice it, if you can notice Something very important after verse 21. You're all looking, you're all looking. What is it? Here it is. I want you to notice that after verse 21, the book is not over. Okay, you see that? Yes, you see it. After verse 21 comes verse 22. The book doesn't end. We are only a little of the way, you know, a third through the book. We go through chapter 40. Now, why is that so key? Because the Israelites have crossed over the Red Sea We've had the wonderful song of Moses. They have redemption. And now what? Well, they they have the rest of their lives to live. It is a great reminder for us. Some of us would like it better if the story ended at verse 21. We like to think of the Christian life that way. We're in slavery to sin, and we cry out, and then God sets us free, and then we're Christians, and we're saved, and then we just, we just float up to heaven, and the hallelujah chorus goes, and it's all over, yay! But of course, that's not what happens. You're still here. I'm still here. The rest of the story is not just 
celebrating that deliverance, it is, but it's now, what does it mean to follow this God who has saved us? You could put it this way, the first 15 chapters are about getting out of Egypt. The remaining chapters are about getting Egypt out of us. Okay, we're, we're out of there, but it's not out of us. What does it mean now to follow this God who has saved us and delivered us? He's not done with you. When you become a Christian, and I trust that's probably what most of you are, maybe some of you are just visiting, we're glad you're here, maybe there's some kids haven't yet you know, made that decision for themselves, but most of you say, yes, I love Jesus, I'm following Jesus. So you're a Christian, that's wonderful. Now what? He's not done with you. He wants to shape you, change you, teach you, help you, refine you, show you what it means to have him as Savior and as Lord. And we begin now in this section Leading up to Sinai in chapter 19 and 20 and then to the rules and the statutes and the tabernacle and the golden calf and eventually to the glory of God filling that tabernacle at the end of the book, we enter into a time to learn what does it mean to follow this God? What does he want from us? What can we expect from him? There are three lessons I want us to see. Now, these lessons are not always how things ought to be but they are how things often are in the Christian life. These are the realities, whether we like them or not. Three things you can count on. The first one we ought to avoid, but probably won't. The second one we ought to expect. And the third one we ought to hope for. Three realities in the Christian life we see in this short section. Here's the first reality for us as Christians. Grumbling often follows grace. Now, we ought to avoid this, but we see clearly this is the reality, and we've all lived it, we've all seen it, we've all come to expect this reality. Grumbling often follows grace. Now, we read in verse 22, Moses made Israel set out. Kind of strange language. He made them set out, and you just wondered, did they want to stay put? Maybe they felt safe there. Maybe they wanted to bask in the glow of their victory stand on the banks of the Red Sea, maybe just look out and see all the dead Egyptians there and just look out and be reminded of how great it was and all their glory and how wonderful it was for God. And they just wanted to tell the story over and over. Maybe they just wanted a break. But Moses says, it's time to go. And it ultimately wasn't Moses' decision, it was God's. We will see later and at the end of the book that this pillar of cloud by day and this pillar of fire by night This God appearing would lead them all throughout their wilderness journeys. And so they set out into the wilderness, a sparsely populated desert in the northern part of the Sinai Peninsula. And it says in verse 22, they went three days in the wilderness and found no water. No water. And so it took three days, verse 24, and the people grumbled against Moses. Three days. Think of all that they had seen. They had seen snakes from sticks. And those snakes swallowing up other snakes. It's amazing. I know here in North Carolina, you know what snakes are. Because they're everywhere. I, I, I the way people talked, I, I thought it was going to be like that scene in Raiders of the Lost Ark where Indiana Jones has dropped down and just everywhere, just snakes crawling out. We've only seen one, I think, so far. They've seen snakes. 
Snakes eat up other snakes. They've seen plagues of blood and frogs and gnats and flies and livestock and boils and hails and locusts and darkness and death. They stood at the banks of the Red Sea, literally between a rock and a hard place, and God opened the Red Sea for them, and they walked through on dry ground, and when they got through, the Egyptian army followed them, and the walls caved in and drowned the Egyptian army. They saw all of that. They've seen God appear in fire and cloud to lead them. They had seen wonders. Three days. It took three days to grumble. Three days to turn grace into grumbling. Parents know what this is like. You go and you plan and you save all year. And you drive down and you go to Disney World. Think, what am I doing here? Well, I'm supposed to do it, and I bring my kids. Um, somebody just said to me recently, a friend of ours was at Disney World with his family, and he said, oh, brother, I'd rather have a bad day at the office than a good day at Disney. That's how he felt. But no, I love there. We're going to take our kids there, Lord. So you plan that, and you save, and you go down there. And when you come, it doesn't take even three days. It takes three minutes. Are we there yet? She's kicking me. I'm hungry. You can do all manner of things. You can set out and do a special thing in the morning, and then you take them out for lunch, and then you go to an evening with dinner, and by the time nighttime rolls around, are we going to do anything fun tomorrow? It's all and, and, and parents and grandparents, we see that. And we say, can't you see all the grace? And we tell them about all the starving people in the world and everything. <laughs> Grace turns to grumbling. And yet, and yet, if we're honest, the Lord must look upon us in the same way. Don't you, how quickly you forget all that I've given you, all the times I've answered your prayers, all the miracles. You're a Christian, you have the word of God, all these things. They had seen wonders in Egypt. Three days to go from grace to grumbling. They say, what are we to drink? Not a bad question, it's a fair question. But they ask it in grumbling. Listen, this is very important. It's not a sin to bring your problems to God. He loves for us to cast our cares upon him. What is a sin is when we bring them in this spirit of complaining. And so Moses cries to the Lord for help, verse 24 and 25. But when Moses cries to the Lord, it accomplishes more than all of the Israelites grumbling. There is, in other words, a difference between Moses asking and the Israelites whining get you much farther with your parents or a teacher or a coach. If you ask, may I have, rather than whine, why don't I have? That's what the Lord says to the people. Moses asks. They had been set free after 400 years of slavery. They had witnessed 10 miraculous plagues. They had seen 100% of Pharaoh's best men swallowed up in the sea, and it only took three days. Three days in the wilderness to forget all of that. Why do we forget so quickly? Why do we go from grace to grumbling so quickly? Well, think about what was facing the Israelites. Let's not be too hard on them because we're a lot like them. We tend to grumble, number one, when we don't know where we are. We don't know where we are. If they had a map, if they had an itinerary, if they had a GPS, they might not have complained, but they didn't know. Slavery was a known. Freedom been living by faith. It's the same thing for us. It's why so many people run back to the world. Slavery is a known. That makes sense. We understand it. We can see it. Faith is scary. 
They didn't know where they were. And they didn't know why they were where they were. If you know why you are where you are, you can endure much more. Being in the hospital to deliver a baby is painful, I've been told. But you know why you're there. You kind of know what's happening. You, you understand what's before you. Being in the hospital with unexplained stomach pains or chest pains is scary. You don't know why you are where you are. And so they didn't know, what, where are we going? Why are we going where we're going? And then see, we tend to grumble when we don't trust the one who is leading us. We're going to find three times in these wilderness chapters, 15, 16, and 17, the Israelites will grumble. And you'll note they never grumble directly against the Lord in these chapters. They always find the human representative of the divine will. They always go to the leader and say, why don't you get with God and figure out what's happening? They don't trust their leaders to lead them. This is why grumbling can be such a serious sin. It shows we don't trust the Lord who is guiding us. And then we grumble when we don't like our circumstances, when we face adversity. They had probably rushed to this water. They're thirsty. Three days, and they come to Marah. You can just hear them in the camp saying, there's water, 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 water. You got two million people maybe. Water! And they run up. And the first person takes a, a deep gulp. And they say, bitter. It's bitter. It was a few years ago, we were visiting Trisha's family in Colorado, and her dad was preaching at a church up in the mountains an hour and a half, two hours away on a Sunday morning. And we had to get up early and drag everybody in the car. And we're driving an hour and a half, two hours. People are getting car sick. We're driving in the mountains so we could go hear him preach. And the kids are complaining and they're thirsty and they're thirsty. And we get to this church, small rural church in the mountains of Colorado. The kids rush out and say, I'm so thirsty, I'm so thirsty. And they go to the, the drinking fountain and they take a sip. And the very first one who takes this big drink of water turns around and says, it tastes like blood. Because <laughs> it wasn't nice city water. It was some really ironous kind of well water or something. And so the word spread back to the camp. It's blood water. <laughs> Don't drink it. That's what's happening here with the Israelites. We're so thirsty. We're so tired. I can't believe what you're doing. We've been traveling forever. And then it comes back. It's bitter. It's bitter. We can't drink it. And so they grumble. They didn't have joy to meet their expectation, only undrinkable water. Obviously, we don't complain when everything goes our way. We complain when circumstances are against us. Listen very carefully, because this is important. A groan is one thing. A grumble is another. It's very important to make the distinction. Because some of you may say, well, my life really is really painful right now. I got sad things going on. I got a diagnosis I'm not happy about. I have wayward children. I, I have an estranged marriage. You may have all sorts of things and you think, is it wrong? Am I, am I just supposed to put on a smile and pretend I'm happy all the time? No. The, the Bible is filled with people who bring their groans, even their complaints to God. A groan is one thing. A grumble is another. I think of the difference this way. A groan comes before God with hands open. Oh, Lord, Why? Why? A grumble comes to the Lord with fists clenched. Oh, Lord, 
Why? Why? You're ready to strike. You're ready to judge. You're ready to accuse. That's a grumble. A groan is one thing. That's very human, and God wants to hear it. A grumble is another, and that's exactly what the Israelites are doing. Not just praying that they might have clean water to drink, but grumbling. Grumbling is one of those sins we universally dislike when we see it in others, but we almost invariably approve it when we do it ourselves. Isn't that true? You don't like to be around grumbling people. Come back, wow, she just complained all the time. Oh, it's such a downer. Being around them is so discouraging. It's just so wearying. You don't like it when people start complaining and grumbling. And yet we tend to excuse ourselves. Well, I just it's bad circumstances. It's, it's hard luck. I'm just venting. I'm just, you know, I'm, this is my personality. Grumbling, we excuse it in ourselves, but not in others. We grumble when neither past provision nor future promises have any bearing on our present pain. That's when we grumble. We look at the past and we see, well, I can't trust God. We look at the future and we say, I don't know if his promises are sure. And then we come to our present pain and we say, God, what are you going to do about it? That's a grumble. That's what the Israelites, they had forgotten all that had happened just three days ago. And they had lost sight of all that he had promised to them all throughout their exodus. And all they knew was they were thirsty and God hadn't given them anything to drink. That's the first reality. Grumbling often follows grace. Here's the second reality. Testing often follows triumph. Grumbling follows grace. That's what to avoid. Here's what to expect. Testing often follows triumph. Moses sent them out into the wilderness, and now it was a reality. Remember when Moses stood before Pharaoh all those times? He not only said, let my people go, but he said, let my people go that they may go into the wilderness to worship the Lord our God. That was always a part of the plea, not just to set them free, but to set them free unto worship. Sometimes we tell the story of Exodus as just a slave people getting free. But it wasn't just freedom from oppression, it was freedom unto worship, that they might go into the wilderness and meet the Lord, their God. And the first thing he does when he brings them out there is to teach them something about trust. First victory, then singing, then a test. It's the first time in Exodus and the second time since Genesis 22.1 that God explicitly tests someone. We read it at the end of the chapter. God made for them a statute and a rule and he tested them. Verse 25. Now, don't misunderstand what this is about. It says, verse 26, if you will diligently listen to the voice of the Lord your God, do what is right in his eyes, give ear to his commandments, keep all his statutes, I will put none of the diseases on you that I put on the Egyptians, for I am the Lord, your healer. Now, don't misunderstand this. This is key. These were requirements for a saved people, not requirements for a people to be saved. This is absolutely key to understanding the whole book of Exodus, especially when we get into the law and to the Ten Commandments. These are not rules so that they might be saved. They've already been saved. 
God doesn't say, okay, you're crying out, you're slaves in Egypt, I have 10 commandments for you. If you get these 10 commandments or you pass this test, if you listen to my word, then I'll come and I'll set you free. But you've got to prove it first. Somebody does. He hears them, he comes, he delivers them, they're saved. And then, as a saved people, he says, now, now I have a test. This is about fellowship, about blessing, not about justification. Test means, look, we can do this the easy way or we can do this the hard way, Israel. He's not promising when he says, I will be your healer at the end of verse 26. He's not saying no one will ever get sick, no one will ever die, you'll have universal health and ease. But what he's saying is you will not meet the same plagues that came upon Egypt. This is the promise he'll make later in Deuteronomy chapter 7, the opposite of what he threatens in Deuteronomy chapter 28 when he threatens curses upon the people for disobedience. This makes sense when you think about it. What was the very first plague to come upon Egypt? The water. They couldn't drink the water. Now, it was more than that because the Nile was, was a deity to them. But the very first plague, they don't have water to drink. What's the very first thing that happens to Israel when they begin to grumble? Or why they grumble? They don't have water to drink. You think the Lord knows what he's doing? He's got a test here. And what happens with Egypt? They have water that they can't drink, and God puts in a stick. Remember? A staff. That'll change it back. And what happens here with Israel when they have water that they cannot drink? They get a log, a stick. Same thing. They get a log thrown in there. God is deliberately drawing this parallel with the experience of the Egyptians in Egypt. He's he's trying to teach them, do you want to be like Egypt? Is that what you want? You want me to treat you? You want me to discipline you like Egypt? Because if you want to go back there, we can do this the hard way. You can have water that they can't drink, and we'll do this just like a stick, just like a log. He's testing them. The liberty that they've experienced is not meant to lead to license. The Israelites need to realize that God was not some sort of personal genie. He was not a talisman to wear around the neck or a rabbit's foot to keep in their pocket. God being for you does not make God indifferent to your sin. They may have had the mistaken notion that we just go from the other side of the Red Sea right to Canaan. Some of us think that. We go grace to glory, nothing in between. But there were no shortcuts. They had to travel through the wilderness. And every single one of us, we have to travel through the wilderness if we want to get to the promised land. And along that path, God is going to test us and he's going to teach us. Will we keep singing when the triumph turns to testing? That's what he wants to see because they were full of song when the Red Sea swallowed up the Egyptians. Aaron was singing, Miriam was singing, Moses was singing. But now will they keep singing when the triumph has turned to testing? Be still, my soul, the Lord is on thy side. Bear patiently the cross of grief or pain. Leave to thy God to order and provide, and every change he faithful will remain. Can you sing that? When peace like a river attendeth my way, when sorrows like sea billows roll, whatever my lot, thou hast taught me to say, it is well, it is well with my soul. Jesus, I my cross have taken all to leave and follow thee. Destitute, despised, forsaken, thou from hence my all shall be.
Here's the test for the Israelites. Will you listen? Will you do? Will you give ear? Will you keep my commandments? That's what he says in verse 26. If you will diligently listen to the voice of the Lord your God and do that which is right in his eyes and give ear to his commandments and keep all his statutes. You see those four verbs there? Listen, do, give ear, keep. Four verbs. Way back in chapter two, there were four other verbs. This is, this is before God had, had done anything that they could see. And the Israelites were crying out for a deliverance. It said their cries went to God. And it said that he remembered his covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He saw their plight. He heard their cries. And God knew. That's how chapter 2 ends. That's how the ESV translates it, I think, correctly. And God knew. See, that was way back in chapter 2 when it looked for all the world to the Israelites that God was not there. And all the world was, was dark, empty, silent. They're suffering for four centuries as slaves. And chapter two ends with those powerful four verbs. God remembered, God saw, God heard, God knew. And he hadn't done anything at that point. They didn't even know. That was just the the narrator. That's Moses telling us what God knew. But they didn't know. And that may be where you are at this point in your life. With the pain you have. With the trial you're going through. Feeling like, it's not been 400 years, but it feels like that sometimes. Of feeling alone, of feeling scared, of being depressed, of feeling anxious, of trying to make ends meet, of living in a, a loveless marriage. Can you trust that God remembers God hears, God sees, God knows. That's God's part. And then he tells the Israelites here, okay, was I not true to my word? Was I not true to my promises? Now here's my test for you. Will you listen? Will you do it? Will you give ear? And will you keep my commandments? In other words, it's God's way of saying, I heard you. Do you hear me? I heard your cries. That's why you're saved. Will you listen to me now? Even when you don't know where you're going or where you are or when you'll get there? Testing often follows triumph. And here's the final point. Grumbling follows grace. Testing follows triumph. And then finally, Elim eventually follows Mara. I said the first point is what to avoid but we often don't. The second is what to expect. And now this third point is what to hope for. Elim eventually follows Mara. You see here at Mara, bitter, God was gracious with a whole bunch of folks who didn't deserve it. And so he gives them on the other side of Mara this place of palms, this place of springs, this place in verse 27 called Elim. You may see hospitals have been named that, schools have been named that, mission organizations have been named that. It's come to mean a place of rest, of healing, of plenty, of prosperity. There are a dozen wells, one for each of the 12 tribes. There are 70 trees, representative for the 70 elders of Israel, probably. God is gracious to send us both seasons of prosperity and seasons of adversity. 
And whichever one you're in right now, God has something that he wants to teach you. Now, all of us would rather sign up for the lessons that we get in the seasons of prosperity. But he also leads us in seasons of adversity, and he usually has more to teach us in those lessons. After a great success, he sends Mara. And after a time of Mara, he brings Elim. We need both. One to make life sanctifying, and the other to make life sweet. If life were only Mara, you could hardly endure it. And so we hope that there is an Elim coming. And if life was day after day, nothing but Elim, just camped down with springs and palm trees and a wonderful vacation, we wouldn't know that we needed to trust. And God wouldn't be able to teach us all the things he wants to teach us. When you are at Mara, and some of you feel like you are at Mara, don't forget God. He's not forgotten you. Sometimes the worst part of suffering, isn't this true? The worst part is the hopelessness. The human spirit can be very resilient, and we can endure all sorts of pain and anguish. If, if, if we have hope that something would get better, if we have hope that someone's listening, if we have hope that somebody cares, when life gets absolutely at its bottom, it's when we're convinced no one listens, no one understands, no one cares, nothing will ever change, nothing will ever get better. That's, you get in that deep, dark place. You must believe that God has better things in store for you, hopefully soon, but always eventually. And we see so clearly in the rest of the Bible that there is even more important water than the H2O that they found at Elim. Because the bitterness that most ensnares us is not a bitter drink, but it's the bitterness of sin, of resentment. Hebrews 12, 15, see to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, and by it many become defiled. Hebrews is warning us, don't be the sort of person who gets stuck at Mara and you never know what it is to make it to Elim because you are ensnared by that root of bitterness. You're bitter towards your parents, towards an ex-spouse, an ex-friend, or in the gall of bitterness for your own failures and sins. Just can't get out of that downward spiral of regret and recrimination and self-flagellation and you think that somehow you can pay for those sins by making yourself feel miserable enough and you can't. That's just adding pride to all your other sins. You need a savior outside yourself. At least the Israelites knew they were thirsty. So many people in our world ensnared in bitterness, drinking from the, the fetid pools of Mara and they don't even know what they're drinking. Maybe some of you, maybe some people in your life that you're praying for, maybe some people that God wants you to speak to this week, they don't even know how thirsty they are. They've been drinking bitter water for so long. And it's true in some way for all of us. To one degree or another, we're stuck at Mara and we're looking for Elim. This world is not going to satisfy this world, isn't that something to, to speak of, of, of 
the presence of God in our lives and that there is a God that nothing, no matter how successful you are, you can, you can read of the most wildly successful people in the whole world doesn't satisfy. We're hearing Tom Brady after one of his umpteenth Super Bowls and married to a supermodel and all that. I mean, just he says, yeah, I'm still wondering what else is out there, what more there is. Everyone feels that if they're really honest with themselves. Maybe you're feeling that too. You're stuck at Mara. You're looking for a leam. Do you know that you're thirsty? Do you know where to go to get that thirst quenched? In just a moment, we're going to sing these words. I hear the Savior say, Thy strength indeed is small. Child of weakness, watch and pray. Find in me thine all in all. Will you come? For the first time, for the, the millionth time, will you come? Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. He who has no money, come, buy and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money and without price, Isaiah says. If anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink, Jesus tells us. Whoever is thirsty, let him come. Let the one who desires take the water of life without price. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we pray that you first might give us the grace to know that we're thirsty. And maybe we're thinking of some people very dear in our lives right now, friends, family, loved ones, maybe it's just someone we met, and they don't even, they have no idea how thirsty they are, how often they've been drinking from bitter wells. Would you open their eyes? Would you give them new taste buds? Would you give us the opportunity, perhaps this week, to speak a word of life? And Lord, for all here who feel themselves stuck at Mara, feeling beneath the the Sunday smile and the Sunday best, feeling absolutely worn down, exhausted, embittered, tired, depleted, depressed, would you give the hope that you do have waiting for all your children 12 springs, 70 palms, a place of Elim. And we would love to have it now. And whether you give it to us soon or later, help us to wait. And in the waiting, help us to worship. We are prone to grumble, prone to wander. And so we come to you, weak, frail children, knowing that our strength is small and coming to you that we might find our all in all. In Jesus we pray. Amen.